Father, again, we ask that just as you led the Magi on the night of the Epiphany, that you would again lead us to see the light in the midst of darkness and travail. And through seeing that light, bring praise and thanksgiving. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our gospel text for this morning is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and it will be the text that I'll be preaching from today. I would imagine quite familiar a text since, well, the events described herein were just sung about. Interesting to note that uh, the song that we just sung is, of course, called We Three Kings. In fact, in Scripture, these people are not ever called kings, but the truth of what the song reports is actually pretty accurate. And so with that, let's go ahead and read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who, was been, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men, or magi, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. End of reading. Well, as we've mentioned already in this service, we are celebrating the season of Epiphany or the day of Epiphany today, even though the official celebration happens this upcoming Wednesday. And I suppose the question I have on my mind today to begin with is what comes to your mind when you hear the word Epiphany? Of course, for me, I I can't help but think first and foremost of the church I planted in New York City because, in fact, it was named Epiphany. Uh, But I would imagine for most of us, that's not what immediately comes to mind when we hear the word. I think for most of us, generally speaking, if we think about anything, we, we sort of associate epiphany with an aha moment, most often illustrated in cartoons with, you know, the light bulb that suddenly appears above the top of someone's head as, as they suddenly have a realization or they, they see something that they didn't see before. They have a new idea. And indeed, if you were to go look up the word epiphany in Merriam-Webster's dictionary still I suppose, one of the gold standard dictionaries, it basically says the same thing. One of the definitions is that 
An epiphany is an illuminating discovery, uh, realization, or disclosure. Well, what is the illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure that really this day celebrates and that this text uh, shows us? Well, it's not something that necessarily wasn't predicted in the Old Testament. It was. It was predicted all over the place, but it was still not something that was very easily seen by most people, and it was this simple truth, that Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, was not merely Israel's Messiah only, but in fact, the world's Savior, the world's Messiah, that he had come for both Jew and Gentile, as the Magi, the wise men, are no doubt Gentile. And so what I want to deal with today as we move through the passage is I, I want to deal with the question of what happens when, when this epiphany of Christ, the, the light of the world, comes into the world, what happens? What's the result? Well, the first thing I think we see almost immediately is that the corrupt get very nervous. That was certainly the response of Herod to the news that he had received from these magi as they came asking where the child was. It is important to note, by the way, that probably by this time, although our, you know, um, our manger scenes typically present the wise men giving gifts to this newborn baby. In fact, Jesus is most likely about two years old by this time. They've been traveling a while. This has been something that they've been staying in Bethlehem for a while, as a matter of fact. But they've done it under the nose of Herod. Herod hasn't really, apparently, taken much notice. And now he has foreign dignitaries showing up. It could be far more than three, by the way. We assume it's three because there's three gifts. But in fact, it, there was probably a ton more people that traveled with them, considering how far they came from. Herod, this, this puppet king of the Jews, hears them ask where the true king of the Jews has been born and where he's staying. And of course, he gets very, very weary. And there was good reason for Herod and for that matter, the religious establishment around him to get very weary and get very nervous. From a historical perspective, even outside of the scriptures, we do know a few things about Herod. We know that he was an absolutely brutal leader, that he had had wives killed and sons killed and anybody else killed that threatened his ego or made him feel in insecure in any way whatsoever. The fact is the population of Israel and Judah couldn't stand him. They hated him. But because he had the support of Rome, and Rome was such a powerful empire, there really wasn't anything they could do. He was a puppet king with an iron fist. And as far as the religious establishment of the time, I mean, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to know that by this time they have sold themselves out for power and influence. And the fact is, wherever Jesus is revealed to be the true king, no matter where it is throughout history, the response of the Herods and the corrupt religious establishment is not an uncommon response to the corrupt today and throughout all of history. This isn't the last time that Jesus will be seen as a threat. 
And this fear, historically speaking, almost always results in persecution. Indeed, in the very next passage, just a few verses after this, we'll see that Herod lashes out and orders all baby, baby boys under the age of two to be slaughtered in Bethlehem. Sadly, the same thing still happens today. Thankfully, it doesn't happen in this country, in the United States, but don't be fooled, it happens all over in corrupt places around the world. Leaders get threatened by the strength of a church when the light of his kingdom shines, and soon Christians are jailed or killed. Churches are forced underground. But of course, you know, it's easy to sort of pick on them, you know, the, the corrupt out there, the corrupt leaders, and say, oh, it's just, you know, of course they get nervous. But if we dig a little deeper, we go a little further, we have to recognize that the same corruption that would fill Herod's heart or fill the religious establishment's heart lies deep inside every human being naturally as well. All of us, to some degree, because we're all stained with the corruption of sin, could easily give in to the same type tendencies. In fact, if I'm honest with you, I have, at least privately, quietly, not in front of a camera. But has there been times where I've reacted to light exposing me to something I didn't want to see in a negative way? Of course. It's very often the natural response when light exposes our darkness. When, when suddenly we're forced to confront something that we'd really like to keep hidden and don't want to acknowledge out in the open. Sometimes it begins with just denial, no, 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 or minimizing, no, it's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal. Or even hiding, as with our first parents in the garden. We'll do everything we can to hide, even if there's some pathetic fig leaves that we've got to try and sew together. And eventually, even it may result in lashing out at that light. Just go away. Close my eyes. Cover my ears. La, 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 la. It's the natural human way to deal with light shining on things that we don't want exposed. And yet, as painful as that process can be, of corruption being illuminated. For those who have come to acknowledge that reality, that indeed they're not perfect, that they don't have everything together, that in fact their hearts are not what they ought to be, there's an interesting thing that happens, and that is not just that the corrupt get nervous or scared or hostile, but the same kind of corrupt people the outsiders can be drawn near. The text tells us that as Herod gathers the religious establishment, his cronies that he's appointed to be in positions of leadership, he asks them, where's the child to be born? And they actually do quote the right scripture to him. They quote from the prophet Micah. 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, we're so used to hearing about Bethlehem, especially around the Christmas season, we're so used to it being a common name that throughout our history, because it's so associated with the birth of Christ for the last 2,000 years, that we might not recognize just how, well, shocking and surprising this fact may have been. The fact is, Bethlehem was a podunk, no-name town that had no influence whatsoever. Most scholars would estimate that back then, Bethlehem maybe, maybe had a population of a thousand people. It was a tiny town six miles away from the real power center in Jerusalem that boasted some 600,000 people. Of course, one would expect if the true and better king of the universe was going to make a grand entrance into the world that he would want to do it in Jerusalem, that he'd want to do it even in the heart of Herod's palace to make sure Herod knew who the real boss was. But no, Jesus comes to a tiny town called Bethlehem. And one of the reasons I think that that's so significant is because it's a precursor to what Jesus will do throughout his whole ministry and what he still does today. And that is, he exalts outsiders. He, He boasts people that have no reason to be lifted up. He, uh, he, he goes after the small and unimpressive. I mean, the Magi were kind of in a similar boat. They were outsiders. They were Gentiles. They, uh, we have no reason to believe that they were actually believers in the Jewish Messiah. As a matter of fact, the reason that they're so keen on the star leading them is probably because they were into astrology. They had come some 800 miles from either Iran or Iraq. I mean, the the trip must have been brutal for them to get there. And yet, by the time they come before the baby Jesus, or the toddler Jesus, as it were, these outsiders are brought to their knees. The light has shined, and they have bowed down. Tax collectors, prostitutes, adulterers, thieves... 'er Ne'er-do-wells, Jesus was quite attractive to those who knew the corruption within and weren't pretending otherwise. In fact, to those who had no illusions about their inherent goodness or morality, (laughs) Jesus seemed to be their cup of tea. What he had to say was something they were ready and needed to hear. I have a bright green shirt. Some of you may have seen it. I'm not wearing it today in case you're colorblind. Uh, I have a bright green shirt with big black letters on it. It's not a very impressive shirt. But those big black letters on that t-shirt say these words. Jesus is for losers. Jesus is for losers. Now, from time to time, I would wear that shirt as I walked around the streets of New York City seeking to talk to people. And inevitably, with a shirt like that, with those big black letters, it would invite a response. And what I found is two very common responses. On the one hand, I would have people that clearly didn't believe say to me, 
Yeah, bro, that's right. I love that shirt. Thinking that I was mocking and degrading Christianity. On the other hand, I would have those who clearly were Christians offended by the shirt, thinking I was mocking and denigrating the faith. Of course, I was doing no such thing. In fact, I was seeking to present in, granted, a little bit of a jolting way, the conclusion, the heart of the story of the Scriptures, yet, that yes, Jesus really is for the ne'er-do-well, for the loser, for the failure, for the dropout, for the junkie, and the list could go on and on. He's for the people that know they're a mess. Jesus is for losers. That's why he came. What does he say? I mean, literally, it's his mission statement. I came to seek and save the who? The lost. Losers. Yes, when Jesus is revealed, losers, outcasts, outsiders are drawn near. And the reason that happens is because, well, is because Christ will die for all. For all. Now, you might be saying, okay, well, of course you're going to get there, Eric, because this is what you do all the time. You go to, you find a way to, you know, point us to the death of Christ because we need that. Yes, that's true. I'm going to do that all the time. But I'm not getting it from nowhere. The text actually points us there. Now, some of you might be skimming the text very quickly right now, saying, I don't see it, I don't see it, I don't see it. Well, let me explain. It actually is connected to the song we sang just before I got up here to preach. It's found in the gifts. It's found in the gifts of the Magi themselves. Now, we know that the gifts they give, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were gifts that were given to kings or presented to other deities back then. They actually were pretty common gifts. We know, for example, that in 234 BC, King Seleucus offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the god Apollos. We, we know this, or I should say Apollo. So from the Magi's perspective, they could have simply been offering what would have been seen as common gifts for a king. Fair enough. We don't really know how much the Magi knew by the time they showed up there or how much they knew when they chose to give those gifts. All they knew is that this one to be born was supposedly the king of the Jews. But dig a little deeper into the scriptural significance of these gifts, and I think you'll see why I say this points to the atonement of Christ borne out for us on his cross. Of course, first, you do have gold, and that was... Uh, very clearly symbolizing his status as a king. That's pretty basic. But the frankincense and, and myrrh are interesting. Let's take the frankincense first. We know in Exodus chapter 30 and 34 that frankincense is mentioned as being the in incense that was to be used at the altar of God where sacrifices were to be made. What was the point of the incense? To provide a pleasing aroma to God. What's being pointed to here as the Christ child receives 
this incense that would be burned on the altar. That indeed Jesus will perform a priestly function as in fact God's high priest and offer himself on the altar as well. And that that will be the ultimate pleasing aroma to the Father. But dig a little deeper still into the myrrh. The myrrh, of course, was something that was used, uh, you know, as an expensive perfume or, or incense as well. But there's two, there's two places that myrrh is mentioned in the Gospels, and both of them, both of them have to do with the death of Jesus. Mark 15, 23 tells us that when Jesus was up on the cross, some soldiers offered him wine mixed with myrrh which he refused because supposedly the wine and the myrrh would help numb his pain and Jesus was not going to numb it one bit. He was going to endure all of it. But then you also have in John chapter 19, verse 39, the record that Nicodemus, when he came to wrap the body of Jesus, taking it down from the cross and ready to place it in the tomb, did not come empty-handed, but in fact brought... 75 pounds of myrrh. Why would he do that? Well, from their perspective, it was basically to keep the stench of Jesus' decomposing body from being too overwhelming. It was supposed to ward off that smell. But unwittingly, Nicodemus, not knowing yet that Jesus would rise on the third day, is actually pointing us back to the gifts Jesus receives even at two years old. Folks, the point is, there is never a day, a minute, a second in Jesus' life, never, where he is not our king, where he is not functioning as our priest, interceding on our behalf, and where his Death is not looming over everything. And folks, this is ultimately the epiphany all must have. This is the big idea that Christ came to offer Himself for you. When I say for you, I don't mean just you, I mean you. I mean everyone. Martin Luther put it this way in one of his Christmas sermons based on the prophecy found in Isaiah 9 that says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He writes this, The first thing to learn in this prophecy of Isaiah is that a child is to be born to you and is your child. We must accentuate the word us and write at large. That is, when you hear a child has been born to us, make the two letters U and S as large as heaven and earth and say the child is born. It is true. But for whom is he born? For us. For me. He continues, God allowed this child to be born for the sake of condemned and lost sinners. 
for the corrupt. Yes, for even the Herods of the world, for those who would seek to squelch out his life, for the high priests that would mock him at the cross. Yes, even for them, for his enemies. What does he say as he hangs on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, for them and for you. Luther says, true, I am godless and wicked. There is nothing good in me, nothing but sin, vice, depravity, death, devil, and hellfire. Against all this, however, I set this child, whom the Virgin Mary has in her lap and at her breast, for since he is born for me, that he might be my treasure, I accept this child and set him over against everything I do not have. For what can the devil do to us with such a king on our side? Indeed, what happens at the Epiphany is yes, the darkness, the corruption is exposed. The light shows us things that we'd rather not admit. But if we do, but when we come clean and finally say, I can't, I've made a mess of things. When we stop fighting it, and we say, yes, it's true. then that light that feels like an enemy at first all of a sudden becomes our greatest ally, our greatest friend becomes the most comforting thing that we could possibly ever become close to. Yes, that's, that's what happens when Christ is epiphany to the world. Sinners are forgiven and made into children of God. Father, we thank you for the good news of the epiphany. As you drew Gentiles and non-believers to yourself back then, we ask that you'd continue to draw those who don't believe to you now. For those who may have tuned in here today by happenstance, maybe they were directed here by a friend, but they're, they're sitting at home watching this, wondering if it's true, I pray that your spirit would do the same thing that you did for the Magi. That you'd cause them to bow down and see the need for the light of the world for themselves. Because we have this light, Father, we pray the prayer that he has given us to say with one voice, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.